So the theme of tonight's talk is around watching the mind. And um, it seems to be coming a little bit of a tradition, which when you're in one place long enough, you can get traditions, <laughs> that when I come back from a time away from here, you know, I'm usually here eight months of the year, but you know, periodically I'm away. When I come back, I like to share some aspect of the Dharma, some aspect of practice from which I've been exploring during my time away. And so um, to begin tonight's talk, it will be a bit around my experience of watching the mind on a trip to tropical paradise. And (laughs) it was interesting to me, both just in how much of a practice it was, um, just the scene of that. And there was also some aspects of it that I feel like really kind of parallel our experience here and maybe things that you've run into. And so I just thought um, I would begin by sharing something of that. But first of all, to say about watching the mind. You know, I'm not speaking about just watching the thinking mind, the rational mind. I'm talking about the totality of the mind, you know, this mind that thinks, feels, you know, there's mind states, um, different activities in the mind, uh, atten- intentions arise within the mind, there's liking, disliking, um, you know, there's a whole vast array of experience. And then there's the quality of the mind that simply knows, you know, that is awareness. And so I'm speaking to the vast array of experiences that we call the mind. And, you know, in in my own practice, in my life, that this has really become a place where a lot of attention is given because it's so revealing. And I actually have found that it is a way of practice that is quite sustainable in daily life. And, you know, certainly there's times when it gets lost, I get caught, but that, you know, actually this trip in itself brought uh, a greater sense of faith and confidence just in the continuity of practice that unfolded. But as you'll see, it wasn't without its moments. But these moments are also a great place of deepening understanding and wisdom. So that, you know, when the, you know, different things turn up in the mind, there's not so much reaction to, sense of being thrown about by. You know, in our lives, we can have a lot of fear about this mind. You know, that if we've ever been prone to depression... No, and just seeing how lost and how solid the world can become around depression. Or, you know, maybe we have uh, self-judgment or self-hatred that just is a frequent visitor. And we become afraid of really noticing the terrain of the mind and instead maybe more drawn to just being with the body in a simple way. But, you know, it is the quality of the mind itself that even if we are paying attention to what the body's doing, we're not doing it as an act of, you know, um, exercise in being aware of the body. What changes it into a meditation or a mindfulness practice is the awareness of what's happening in the body. 
And that awareness is based in the mind. So um, that's just to say a little bit about what I mean by the word mind. And so even though this trip was technically, on one level, a holiday. <laughs> we get a holiday from, you know, maybe the daily interactions, pressures, if we have work, whatever it might be in our lives. But on another level, there is no holiday from the mind. You know, wherever you go, <laughs> it's sure to follow. <laughs> And so, you know, this is something I recognize and am happy about. You know, I wasn't going to take a break from my practice. You know, I was actually going to what I hoped would be supportive, nurturing conditions for a deepening of the practice. And, you know, this, I think that's really what we come on retreat for. You know, we're drawn to supportive, nurturing conditions. And that in itself can set up a lot of expectation, some of which can be seen and some of which we may not be seen until the expectations are not met. So the journey to my destination was really the scene of the practice in motion. Uh, on the journey, um, first of all, was just seeing what was the attitude here. Was this simply simply something, motions I had to go through to get to where I really wanted to be? Or was this a part of the journey? Was this a place where the practice could happen, unfold? And the journey down there, I really was feeling a great benefit to practice. Because initially the plane took off, it was, well before it took off, it was delayed. That meant when uh, I had a change in flights um, and at that changeover, you know, had to rush to get to the next flight, which meant that I couldn't make an important phone call that I had planned to make, uh, which meant that in arriving at my destination, I made it, but my bags didn't, which also meant that there was needing to spend a lot of time waiting in a hot, airless part of the airport. And it was there where I very quickly became acquainted with what's called island time. Things moved very slowly. Some like like we have on retreat. <laughs> Things were moving very slowly. But through all of this, there was acceptance. You know, there was just the scene. This is out of my control. This is just what's happening, turning up, being present. And, you know, this um, continued even as standing in line there. You know, other people very irritated. uh, And then one woman just coming in and really boldly stepping right in front of me, you know, with this indignant righteousness. But in that moment, you know, there was just the awareness of her suffering. And, you know, there had been a moment, there's no question, a moment where my righteousness arose in the mind, and there was the scene of that. And then it didn't need action. There was no need to follow through. And there was just acceptance. And actually a sense of being kind to that woman because her distress was so strong. So this level of acceptance 
followed through right until I arrived at my destination. And then things changed. <laughs> um, stepping off the taxi into, it, it's an eco-tent resort. So, um, you know, it has all of these tents over the property that, you know, lovely tents have three kind of screened-in sides, and so you just get a sense of being out in nature. I know I'd heard about this place from some friends, and they'd painted a wonderful picture. And so this, again, is where expectations get set. Well, I stepped off that taxi, and there was this loud music blaring. It had never been a piece of my holiday in paradise. And it was suddenly like, I felt like, you know, in going to this tropical island, I was in the midst of New York City. It seemed so busy. And so then checking in and, you know, knowing this place was quite big, tents spread out over quite an area, the fantasy, I'll be at one, you know, remote corner, it will be quieter, it will be okay. And when we were given our room, I could tell the woman thought she was giving us a very good tent. And it just the way she did, she was delighted when she looked to see where we were. Well... <laughs> I wasn't quite so delighted when I discovered it. You know, we walked to it. We found it was very centrally located. Many people, probably that's part of their criteria. But, you know, that meant very close to the music. It meant it was very close to the laundry, which ran from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. daily. It was very close to the main building that had a lot of mechanical noises. And then I walked into the tent And, you know, all of my friends had talked about the spectacular view. No view. In that moment, any level of acceptance was out the window. Complete reactivity. And I have to say that I thought of many people who come here. This is a similar phenomenon that happens. I mean, here it's quiet, but it's so quiet that if you get a room that has a lot of noise, um, some of many of them do. I mean, just the heating system here makes noise. And when we think of coming to the Force Refuge, maybe we've come on a tour and we've come into this meditation hall and it's so quiet and so still. You know, that's the imprint in the mind that's there. And then we go and we sit in our room and you hear all this noise, you hear the person above you snoring, you hear them farting, you know, it's like, ah, I can't do this. And that was what my mind said. You know, wait a minute, I paid way too much for this. (laughs) This isn't what paradise is. And so uh, back to the office, just like many yogis here have done. (laughs) I want a room change. The very kind people, not possible tonight, come in the morning go the next morning and they give us a few options we go check them out we pick one but it's not available till the next day so we go back to our tent site that seems fine you know that's okay but as we're there we start to settle in we start to relax you know that that kind of agitation that had been in the mind starts to dissipate and what also started to become really apparent was the thought that came frequently during this trip that, sa- you know, that says, 
that if you do something just a little bit different, paradise will be even better. But when that thought would come, it became recognized rather than believed. You know, it's really that if-only thought that arises in our practice. You know, if only, you know, we get conditions just a little bit better. It's the thought that just creates so much agitation. It creates restlessness. It creates a feeling of dissatisfaction. And all it is is just a thought. And during the course of that day, I could see that, you know, if the mind was just present, stayed connected to what was happening, that if it wasn't moving into this groove of believing that we could really make paradise great, but open to the way things were, it was paradise. You know, it, it, things were perfectly okay. And, you know, once that became seen, we we just canceled our desire or a need to have to move. And we're very happy to stay where we were. Although, you know, periodically during the the time there, the thought would come, well, what if we had moved? What if we had got a, a view? Would I feel better right now? But, you know, it just wasn't believed. It was just seen. And then it loses its power. there became quite a rueful amusement with this thought because it can be very seductive. You know, just wanting to make things a little bit more pleasant. And, you know, I began to see it as this, um, you know, this navigator who's just edging for what it wants all the time. And, you know, it, it, it was also being there, just such a great arena to watch the mind around pleasant experience because it's so seductive and it's so easy to slip into the intoxication with, you know, just to become intoxified. Is that a word? Intoxicated (laughs) by this pleasant experience experience. And, you know, what does that lead to? It leads to disconnection. It leads to uh, setting up of craving, wanting, needing to find another experience that is going to bring the same level of intoxication. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it gets really tiring. Actually, here in these days, you know, spring, this is another level of paradise, especially if you've been here through the winter. And, you know, to feel the warmth of the sun come back, to see the birds come back, to hear their calls, to see the buds coming out. It's really easy to walk outside and just get swept away in the beauty and, you know, if, we, if the mind has been really heavy and dark, there's times when that balance is helpful. But the intoxic- 
intoxication whip <laughs> is not so helpful. And so, you know, I was looking to, you know, just what supports so that that doesn't happen, so it's not, the mind's just not swept away by these experiences. And one is, was just really recognizing this pleasant quality. And, you know, just the mind connecting with the pleasant and neither moving towards or away from. You know, certainly in my own life, one of the things I've seen around pleasant experience is that there can actually be a fear of pleasant experience. You know, one, because there's been so many pleasant experiences that we have chased after, and then, like everything else, they're impermanent, they disappear, and there's a deep level of disappointment. If we've been really banking on, that's what's going to bring true happiness. And and so that can happen. And also, you know, even hearing the teachings, we so often hear about the mind of non-clinging and therefore can develop a real fear of clinging that thinks that, well, I'll just push it away and then there won't be that that impulse to cling. But, you know, that leads to suppression, denial. It, it doesn't allow true wisdom to come through. And so learning to open to pleasant experience has been a real practice in my life. You know, at one point, certainly, there was a predominance of unpleasant experience and can always happen again. But, and that was a lot of the terrain that the mind was learning about. But there's also been a whole arena of learning to open to pleasant experience. And, you know, so here I was in this really pleasant environment looking to what supports and so one was that recognition when, when pleasant experience is there. And then, you know, just watching whether the mind wanted to move towards. Also just giving the support to the mind by not focusing on the pleasant experience, but play, paying attention to the totality of the experience. Because often, even though there may be a predominance of pleasant experience, there's little unpleasant things that nestle in there too that we can tend to overlook when we're just focusing on the pleasant. And, and you know, just seeing, well, the recognition of that helped to keep the mind from absorbing into the experience and really just staying with the knowing, the awareness of this experience. You know, and paying attention to all of the experiences at the different sense doors. You know, so there's a continual flickering of this knowing in the mind as it registers all these different experiences. You know, otherwise, you know, it was just really easy. You know, it was like nestling in the corner with a good book and, you know, just being consumed by it, but not having any awareness. And so, you know, the need to really stabilize this quality of awareness. You know, in in Joseph's talk the other night, he was talking about the necessity for concentration. And that's whether we're doing a, you know, a very focused practice or an open awareness practice. And with the open awareness practice, we stabilize or deepen the concentration through the awareness of the changing experiences moment to moment and the continuity of that deepens the concentration or brings the stability 
you know, and, and that concentration can really be seen as the stable mind. And so, you know, that's what I was working with in these moments so that, you know, the mind was just pull, wasn't pulled about or, um, but stayed aware in the midst of all of these pleasant experiences. Another area of interest was around that of thoughts. And, you know, for me always in being in nature where there's so many different experiences that it becomes really evident when uh, one is getting lost in thought. You know, walking through the woods here that in a moment in moments you know just walking down the road today there was an awareness of seeing of touching of hearing and then a thought would come and if that thought was identified with everything else disappears but then when that thought disappears boom all these other experiences are back and it's like this it somehow is for me a great canvas in which thoughts can be seen more clearly it, quickly, uh, you know, just as we're sitting here practicing, um, that you know, being able to recognize when the, you know it's like uh, this delusion, this whole wor- world that we get caught up in, um, and how that just cuts off the connection with other experiences. And one of the areas of think, the thinking mind that was really interesting to me on this trip was around fear. Um, I was spending quite a bit of time in the water, and I grew up in the mountains. And so I grew up in an area where you know, seeing bears was common. But I didn't grow up in the ocean, even though I spent some time in Australia around the ocean. But when I'm in the ocean, there's just much more that's unknown to me. And so when I see a big creature in the ocean that I'm not sure what it is, it's very likely that fear will be right behind it. Or when I get into conditions that there's uncertainty about, you know, because in in the ocean you get different currents, different pulls, and, you know, not really understanding how the water moves in the ocean, you know, I start to feel a little pull, and again, fear would come. So, you know, one day I was out snorkeling and um, saw what seemed like a rather large fish, and this fish had quite a distinguishable lower jaw. It was big, it stuck out, and it was moving its jaw up and down. And my husband was trying to take a photo of it. And, you know, if I could have, I would have strangled him. (laughs) It was, you know, um, there was a lot of fear. And there was, you know, just... Um, the awareness of the impact of that that thought of that the that fish is going to get me <laughs> it was an uncontrollable urge to swim away 
And, you know, the, then actually it was that day after getting out, you know, talking to him, uh, found out it was a barracuda, which barracudas are actually known for, for their fearful appearance, you know, that they're quite awesome. Although a friend has recently told me that um, they're not known to bite humans. But if they do, they usually only take one bite as we're not what they like. But, you know, in the midst of the water and not knowing this, it was pretty fearful. But the next day, having heard that, you know, they, they don't usually cause harm to people, swimming along, seeing one, that, that big dispute in our family about how big it was, because in my world, it was a whale. <laughs> but it was a big barracuda. And the fear that arose was, you know, huge. And then, you know, just the seeing of the play of fear in the mind, the believing of thought, and if I could recognize the thought, you know, I could at least look over my shoulder. And if it wasn't recognized, and then it's like, okay, stop, look. You know, so there was, a, there was, became in the different places where fear was touched into, really, I wouldn't say that in any of it, I felt like there was a real overcoming or fear of the fear. But it was like start really touching the edges of where that fear was allowing the fear to be there, seeing the thoughts that fed it, feeling the impact when thoughts were recognized. You know, so the whole play of watching the mind and what was happening at that time. And there certainly was a sense that, you know, it's like being able to kind of swim up, touch something, and then move away. You know, it's not that the, there wasn't the steadiness to really see it in its nature but a sense of being able to work with this fear. There was one last aspect of this time that I wanted to speak about because it also really helped the stabilizing of awareness. And, you know, this was where there was a play between body and mind. One of the aspects of this resort, and the particular tent that I was staying in, was that there was 74 steps between me and the toilet. And at this age in life, the toilet is a close companion, day or night. And so these 74 steps were frequently taken. And one of the things, one of the parallels again, was I really saw these steps very similar to the hallways at the forest refuge. You know, that there's a way in which if you're walking down the hallway to get somewhere, you miss the whole experience. But if, it, if you're walking step by step, practice is deepening in every moment. And this was certainly the case here. For me, this was a time when, you know, there, there was just a, um, a wooden walkway with many steps between me and the toilet and just going step by step. And this was a time where the emphasis wasn't so much on the mind unless there was some reactivity, unless, you know, a lot of thinking was happening, but tended to be a time when the practice was just really simple. Just walking, step by step, 
And it felt like that was really helping the stabilization. And so, you know, with this wanting to point towards a way of practice here where we may be investigating the mind, where, you know, the mind can be very elusive at times, can be very complex, and yet there's so much happening there that needs to be understood, needs to be seen. And so having a blend between really watching the mind and all its activities and then these periods of working with the simplicity of mindfulness of the body. So I'd like to just um, kind of highlight some aspects of the practice of watching the mind. Because, you know, for many of us, it feels so elusive. And that there just becomes more a sense of connection, of um, possibility, something that can be done to work with mindfulness of the body. And yet, there's such great value in really watching the workings of the mind. Because this is where we can really come to understand, you know, craving, you know, come to understand the, the, how it is that we keep getting caught, identified with experience how we really begin to see that this level of watching reactivity in the mind, if we're not aware of that, how much that reactivity is creating suffering. And that actually to watch the mind in retreat, in daily life, can be very accessible and very liberating. When we watch the mind, the first thing is to realize if we try to bear down on it, this will end up in disaster. You know, that if we try to uh, focus hard, if we try to keep experiences around, um, it's, it's very elusive. And so it really takes this capacity to relax, receive, and let unfold. The simplest way of just entering into it is just being aware of whatever the mind is knowing. You know, and that will change moment by moment. In one moment, thoughts being known, in another moment, sounds being known, in another moment, intention. In another moment, sights, sounds. But we just pay attention to what is being known. And then with that, working with what's called reflective awareness, a non-interfering attention. Attention. 
I'd like to share something that comes from Venerable Analayo's book, Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization. I suspect Joseph has mentioned this um, in his talks related to the the Four Foundations, um, the series on the Satipatthana that he's doing. You know, it's a brilliant book. And so this is what he says around uh, contemplation of the mind. He says, It is noteworthy that contemplation of the mind does not involve active measures to oppose unwholesome states of mind, such as lust or anger. Rather, the task of mindfulness is to remain receptively aware by clearly recognizing the state of the mind that underlies a particular train of thoughts or reactions. Such uninvolved receptivity is required because of one's instinctive tendency to ignore whatever contradicts or threatens one's sense of importance and personal integrity. I mean, this is where the mind is just so complex and these habits so strong. So just pointing towards this um, uh, non-interfering receptive awareness. Mm. The habit of employing self-deception to maintain one's self-esteem has often become so ingrained that the first step to developing accurate self-awareness is honest acknowledgement of the existence of hidden emotions, motives, and tendencies in the mind without immediately suppressing them. Maintaining non-reactive awareness in this way counters the impulse towards either reaction or suppression contained in unwholesome states of mind and thereby deactivates their emotional pull. You know, this is one of the things when we start looking at what arises in the mind. There can be a tendency towards so much self-judgment, um, you know, things we don't want to see that have been suppressed, denied, and it comes surfacing. And if there's identification there, it's really painful. And so it's really working with this capacity just to see, to know whatever is there. And it's really helpful to remember not to take it personally, not to define self by it, to remember this is just arising out of conditions. And, you know, um, these experiences, you know, so say there's a predominance of self-hatred. You know, there's a particular quality that is present with self-hatred that, and you know, it's come about through these conditions, has its own quality, it's impersonal, it's impermanent, it's not who we truly are. You know, it's a visiting state of mind. And this is where the exploration will show us when we identify with that mind state, suffering comes on in a second. But when there is this receptive awareness, this is just judgment. 
this is just what judgment feels like. This is the nature of judgment. Anybody who experiences judgment would taste this experience. It's so important when we're working with these mind states. Otherwise, you know, there's just this identification and we'll find that these mind states just compound themselves and we end up in a downward spiral and in a state of depression. Um, Just another interesting point from Venerable Analayo's book. In his footnote, he highlights the overcoming of mental defilements by repeated wise observation. And um, he cites a clinical case where there was a 23-year-old male who was hospitalized for extreme periodic aggressiveness and alcohol abuse. And he was cured within eight weeks simply by being taught to recognize and mentally name the emotions he experienced. And he was given no reference to meditation. You know, this is the power of this non-interfering but reflective quality of awareness. Because when the mind begins to stabilize, information comes through. And so, you know, we're, we're not interfering, but the, say the mind is caught in lust. And then there's the recognition of this lust without going into a judgment about it being there, but just the seeing of the lust and the feeling of the lust. And then out of that, you know, we begin to see even deeper about how the lust comes into being. We begin to see you know, the underlying desire, the craving, the wanting. And we begin to feel the pain, the burn, the thirst, the fire that's there. And the identification with breaks of its own accord. As, as the awareness stabilizes, mindfulness strengthens, wisdom comes in, letting go happens. So the honest acknowledgement of the existence of hidden emotions, motives, and tendencies in the mind without immediately suppressing them. Now this honesty allows us to sit upright, to be able to sit without cringing or deflecting, suppressing or denying, simply knowing This is the refuge of awareness. Whatever is. This is what we can learn from. This is our teacher in the moment. This is what we can be present to. Sometimes as we pay attention to the mind, 
we might just see, you know, a lot of different mind states that we hadn't been aware of. You know, I remember at one point in my practice thinking, I used to be a nice person. (laughs) Just seeing this torrent of often really unwholesome mind states. Uh, And this reminds me, too, of something from a lesson from the ocean, where um, when I was living in Australia, I had the opportunity of swimming every day in somewhat warm water. And I did this for, you know, about a year. And at that point, my eyes started to burn a lot. And so I got a pair of goggles. And then I went out swimming. And as I was swimming, there was all these stingrays on the bottom of the ocean. And I, again, you know, panicked, ran out of the ocean. When I went home and told my husband, he laughed at me and he said, you know, those stingrays have been there every day. You've just never seen them. (laughs) And, you know, this is what happens. As mindfulness strengthens, we see more. Don't be discouraged by this. Um, But just let it be. Let it be seen. With this honest acknowledgement The Buddha, too, in speaking of, in his speaking about the mindfulness of mind, the third foundation, um, you know, he pointed towards just this reflective awareness. He says, "Here, a bhikkhu understands mind affected by lust as mind affected by lust, mind unaffected by lust as unaffected by lust." You know, and he went on to talk about in the same way about hate, delusion contracted mind, the distracted mind, the exalted mind, the unexalted mind. And there wasn't any part of it that said, and you are a bad person if this arises. You know, so really, there's a great power to this reflective awareness. In working with the mind, there has to be interest. You know, I think this is um, a place where, uh, well, no no matter how we're practicing, we lose interest, out goes the practice. You know, interest is just an essential ingredient. And to me, the interest is sparked by just knowing that when... I pay attention to whatever's happening in this body-mind experience. This is the very place where understanding can deepen and liberation is possible. And this, you know, means even when the experiences are really difficult and challenging, where we're caught, this is where we can come to understand how it is that identification happens, how it is that we get caught, if we have the interest, if we can really let the mind be steady with. And I've really come to see how this interest, too, helps this stability. One night, I woke up in the middle of the night, and there was a lot of pain, 
The mind was really reactive. And, you know, the first thought was, oh, I need some calmness. You know, that's the only way I can be with this pain. And so really looking to try to build the, the tranquility, stability, and any attempt to find calmness was not working. The mind was so reactive. And then there came an interest in the reactivity. Like, just, you know, what? is the mind doing here? What is so unbearable? And when that interest came, it was like, boom! The mind was there with what was going on. And the stability was there. You know, the interest held the mind there. And so interest isn't there when we take things for granted, when we think we know, when there's complacency. So learning to recognize when those states fall in and being interested in the reactivity, the resistance. You know, we really have to practice with what is. So if resistance, reactivity, if that's what's there, take an interest. Look, be aware, listen. Open to this experience. This is the grounds for liberation. This is where understanding can happen. We don't need some other experience. Watching the mind takes us into the terrain of the thinking mind. Ooh, (laughs) it's pretty uh, seductive (laughs) in so many ways. And it's about learning what seduces the thoughts that are so seductive, the stories. You know, paying attention to this realm of thought Certainly, you know, when we first started practice, there was probably a great benefit to the training to recognize thought, to let go, to come back to the breath. But, you know, as we continue on in our practice, we realize, you know, that that this thinking is a natural function of the mind. And that if we set up an aversive relationship to it, we're just sowing seeds of aversion. And that really there's great value in learning to be mindful of the thinking process. You know, as we do so, there's different experiences that happen. You know, many times awareness of thought, it disappears. Sometimes it doesn't. Can there be awareness of thinking? without being so lost in the thought that the awareness disappears. Retreats are just such a place, great place to explore mindfulness of thinking. We see so much about thoughts on retreat. You know, how many? (laughs) What the mind will think about? You know, it's just amazed me that 
the it will go from you know uh, deep contemplation about what's written on toilet paper packages to uh, thoughts that you know about uh, the vastness of the universe. I mean, Dharma thoughts that are so seductive. Um, oh, I, you know. The, what, some IMS teacher, and I forget now who, you know, talked about how the mind has no shame. And we really see this in the thinking mind, that the mind will think about anything. And what a great teaching. Because, you know, in our lives, we so often believe all these thoughts without stopping to question them at all. And then live as if these thoughts are true. And leads to a very deluded existence. But being able to see these thoughts in their arising, you know, that to, to know it's just something the mind does. It actually has a usefulness at times, but to, be, to let the, the thinking mind be the master just leaves us in the world of concept and not being able to see things in their nature. And so, you know, really paying attention. You know, some thoughts come by way of words. Some thoughts come by way of songs, images, um, impressions. Just the different ways we experience them. Some are really blatant, easy to see. Some, when they're very closely connected to the experience in the moment, are so subtle. You know, I remember times with the thinking mind, uh, maybe the mind, uh, I remember paying attention to the in-breath, the out-breath, and really having a sense of connecting somewhat with the experience, and then noticing that actually I was just thinking about the experience. And, you know, the thought being so close to the experience that it was hard to see. You know, they just, they have this way of slipping in there and not being recognized. And yet, they have a great power. And, you know, sitting, as we sit, we hear lots of little thoughts in the background, you know, the commentary that comes. And many times that commentary is holding within it beliefs about how practice should be, judgments about how we're practicing, and it's not being recognized. And it's the little dictator sitting there in the background, (laughs) you know, needing to be recognized, needing to be seen. And for me, there's been a big part of finding a friendly relationship with the thinking mind because there's been so much aversion to from having been at the mercy of the thinking mind. So really learning a different way of relating and really, again, finding that great refuge in the power of awareness seeing the difference between being lost in a thought and knowing that thinking is occurring. And then I've already touched upon it, but just you know, watching the mind, watching moods, watching the atmosphere in the mind, Because this colors experience. You know, when there's an atmosphere of aversion, if we aren't aware of it, our thoughts 
become based in this aversion, our actions, our speech, and this all creates karma. Where if, if there's an awareness of aversion, it can be seen, can be known for what it is, doesn't have to be identified with. And, you know, it becomes easier, you know, in my own experience, the recognition of aversion, and even if there's some action, some speech that needs to take place, there's a clear choice that is made where that doesn't have to be voiced. You know, it's not thrown into the mix when it's in awareness. When we watch the mind, we become aware of our intentions, motivations. You know, what's driving things? Sometimes we see it's wholesome, sometimes it's unwholesome. We begin to have choice. You know, we begin to be able to just let go of the unwholesome intentions that arise in the mind. Watching the mind, we become aware of awareness itself. You know, this great mystery, this awareness that simply knows we don't do anything to make it happen. It just needs to be recognized. The mind naturally knows. It's its nature to know. Seeing this, one of the great wonders when we see it Who does it belong to? Is it my awareness? Is it simply there, present? The nature of this mind. Without our having to create, fabricate, Simply to recognize without taking ownership, identifying. So, I invite you use this in your practice, investigating, looking into this mind as it is. I wanted to share a teaching that comes from Sayadaw Ujotika. He's a, a monk in Burma, 
He says, I have come here so that I can have more time to go deeper into my own heart and mind. I want to become more acquainted with myself, to see all the conflicting motives, desires, wishes, ideals in my heart and mind. I want to be familiar with all the dark nooks and crannies of my mind and all the creepy and crawly spiders, scorpions, and vipers, all the lions and eagles. Not that I want to drive them away. I just want to become a good friend to my mind, a kind and understanding friend. Unless I know them very well, they will not let me sleep peacefully. I want to get a better idea of how to relate to people. Now, looking into this mind so that we can really come to know the full potential of being a human being, where we can be a friend to both ourselves and others and offer the deepest wisdom within. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.